welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast of comic book and graphic novel publishing, uh, recorded from various places around the United States in a state of quarantine. Um, hi, I'm Heidi McDonald. I am the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. And you can follow us on social media at PW Comics World on Twitter, on Tumblr, uh, and everywhere. And don't forget to hit like and to leave us a rating if you like us. So, today I am pleased to be speaking with Gamal Hennessy, uh, the author of a new book on Kickstarter called The Business of Independent Comic Book Publishing. Welcome, Gamal. Thank you. Thank uh, you very much. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you are writing the guidebook to just what it says, the independent comic book publishing. Um, I was given a sneak peek at the manuscript. It is a lengthy, detailed subheading, subtopics, very, very, um, very detailed guide to what it takes to publish comics from really from soup to nuts. Um, yeah, tell us about the book. Whoa. Well, Sure. Um, the book, the idea of the book came from the fact that I've been representing clients in the comic book industry for about 20 years. And that I came to the conclusion maybe four or five years ago that there was a gap in the information and knowledge that independent publishers were being given. So there's quite a few very good books in the, you know, in the market mm-hmm. for the creative aspect of making comics. There's also a couple of quite good books about specific legal issues in comics, but there's not one specific place where someone can go to figure out everything they needed to know about publishing independent comics from a business and legal standpoint, from the time they get their initial idea all the way to the point where they have a book on the shelf, they have a publishing program and they have a business model that they can replicate with more and more books. So what a lot of my clients were doing, once I helped them with the legal aspect and helped them set up their company and help them protect their IP and write their contracts, everything else they had to figure out on their own. And a lot of that figuring out is they would try something and it would fail, mm-hmm. which would cost them time. It would cost them money. So this book is kind of a way to help them short circuit that kind of process and actually make the decisions they need to make and understand the process as a whole before they dive in with the idea that they love and want to make into a comic. I would have to say that the very idea of a structured business model for a lot of people who get into publishing comics, um, you know, like business model is really just, you know, oh, if we make this much money, we can, you know, we need to print this many books. I mean, that's pretty much as detailed as it goes for a lot of people. (laughs) Yes. Yes, this is true. And I, what I try to do is give people to ask the questions that people may or may not even know that they should be asking before they decide to get involved in the business. I mean, if you're talking about going into prints, well, okay, well, how do you, I want to get my book in the comic shops. Well, okay, how do you get your book in the comic shops? Which comic book shop do you want to get into? How do you find these comic book shops? How do you convince them mm-hmm. to put your book on the shelf? Because they're, you know, independent, I mean, the direct market, each store has its own criteria of how they deal with independent books. And if you don't understand that, 
you're going to like might be banging your head against the wall right. for quite a bit of time before you, you know, see your book on the shelf. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I constantly, uh, as you probably know, I mean, on my site, I do write a lot about business news and I'm constantly amazed at things that people don't know. Um, and I, I mean, this is a very thorough book. Um, it really, even if like, you are thinking of doing this. Like I said, it's almost like a mental checklist, like, you know, Mm -hmm. like of the Mm -hmm. questions you should ask. So before we talk a little bit about the specific advice in it, let's talk a little about um, just, you know, how, how you figured out this stuff. I mean, you started as a lawyer for Mm -hmm. Central Park Media back in the early aughts, I guess, turn of the century. Yes, it was 1998, 99. I became general counsel um for Central Park Media. Central Park Media was a um animation and manga company. We actually licensed the original content from Japan, brought it over here, subtitled it, um did uh US, um, English language, and then we had a manga division. Mm-hmm. We actually did a lot of translations of Japanese manga based on a lot of the titles that we licensed. Mm-hmm. So that was where I started out in the business. Now, were you? Yeah. So you're a lawyer, but you you specialize in IP law. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I mean, were you a fan at all before? Or did you just you know was this just a job that you answered on you know the help wanted? Actually, no. This was I I think I started reading comics probably when I was five or six okay. years old, and I went to my first convention when I was ten in 1980. And I had been reading comics all throughout um, high school, college, law school. I was probably reading comics in law school. That's probably how it got me the job because mm-hmm. a friend of mine saw me reading comics on a regular basis. And when she got offered that job at Central Park Media and she said, well, I don't want this job, but I know <laughs> someone who does. Right. And that's pretty much how I got the job. Right. So. I, I mean, it is funny, like in the time, you know, that we're talking about, which is just a little over 20 years. Um, I mean, uh, the idea of lawyers reading comic books, uh, 22 years ago was pretty unusual and, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, def- definitely now quite mainstream. So. Yes, I was ahead of the curve. At least in <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you know, Central Park Media. Uh, I, actually, my co-host Calvin Reed and I are probably two of the people who remember that because uh, at Publishers Weekly we were so into the covering the world of manga. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, there's been so many ups and downs in that business. Uh, Central Park Media was a huge player in the yeah. game back when um you know it was really viz pioneered it dark horse in the comics market and then you had tokyo pop and uh mm-hmm. man adv there was so many manga publishers at that time and very the only one really left is is viz and dark horse and sometimes tokyo pop absolutely yeah. absolutely but i think the just going through a lot of the conventions especially the smaller ones you go into artist alley and it's so unique to see that so many Artists, regardless of their background, have adopted the manga style in terms of their artwork, probably because things that they actually grew up reading and absorbing were that style. So they, they're not necessarily focused on like the Arthur Adams or, you know, Jim Lee's of the right, world. Right. They want, they want to 
emulate the styles that they grew up with. Yeah, and I mean, it was obviously a huge revolution for comics. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're seeing right now with everything that's happening in the world of publishing, kind of, you know, I think a lot of it comes from the manga revolution. A lot of it stems from the readership that, that, that came in. You know, it was, it was women, uh, it was young, uh, mm-hmm. it was a market that that traditional comics weren't targeting at that time. And, you know, now they're all kind of chasing a wider audience. Exactly, exactly. And that's part of the the idea of the book. We wanted to get, I wanted to get readers away from the idea that there was only one type of comic that they could make. There was only one type of distribution model they could have. There was only one way that it can actually be done because there's so many people who are now, open to and familiar with the idea of comics what they actually want is a if they can find a story that appeals to them Uh then they will actually read that book so the idea is you have to find who your readers are and then go out and appeal to them not with necessarily with the medium but more with the message that you have to tell right and that's where you'll get your readers yeah so so after you know central park media uh so i'm assuming that you just you know, for making contacts and whatnot, you became one of those uh, people who, when somebody was looking for a lawyer to help them, it would be like, "Why don't you talk to that Hennessy guy? He might, he might be able to help you." <laughs> yeah. What happened was, after I was in Central Park Media for about, I don't know, four or five years. Um, well, when I got to Central Park Media, C.B. Sabolsky was the editor in chief of the manga division. Correct. C.B. went over to Mar- to Marvel. And then when Marvel decided they wanted to break into the Japanese market because they didn't have any market penetration there for a long time, uh, they called, they called, told CB, CB told me, I walked into Marvel and I became the international publishing manager. Uh-huh. And the main job there was to get books, um, get our titles into the Japanese market, which was much more competitive to kind of break into than any of our other international markets. So that was the main job. The other jobs were handling a lot of the, you know, the talent agreements, handling mm-hmm. a lot of the licensing that was related to the films, because at that point, you know, X-Men and Hulk and Fantastic Four were getting off the ground in terms of movies. But the the issue that I kept seeing was that I would, like, talent would come into my office and I would say, okay, here's a deal with the editor wants to give you. Take this contract, take it to your lawyer. Let me know if they have any questions. <laughs> but I knew they didn't, he didn't have a lawyer. Right. And he knew he didn't have a lawyer. And he knew he was really just going to sign anything I put in front of him without understanding it. Uh-huh. Because at that point I was Marvel and he wasn't. So when I left Marvel, the first thing I did was I started a boutique firm that just specialized in helping creators understand at the very basic level what exactly they were signing what what was the financial and legal implications of putting their name on that piece of paper so that even if they didn't have the leverage to change anything that they at least understood they went into the agreement with open eyes right now oh go on yeah um i I, man so many questions about this but uh do you feel like, at least with the internet spreading so much information, I mean, let's just say around the same time there was a company that, uh, maybe the name of the company rhymes with, uh, Mokio Shop, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was kind of notorious for having contracts that, 
um, were not very good for the creator, and a lot of very young creators signed them and lived to regret it deeply. Um, yeah. And that was, uh, unfortunately, very, very common. Uh, I don't see quite as much of that kind of predatory practice these days. Um, I feel like, like creators, like, do get a little better education. I, I don't know. I might perhaps look at this through rosy glasses. I see. Well, if you're talking about freelance deals, the answer is probably yes. There's probably less people going into the world trying to sell the idea of exposure mm-hmm. to right. talent as a form of comp- compensation because exposure is not compensation. Correct. But on the creator-owned side or the creator-driven side of deals, you there are still some companies that will put a deal in front of someone and say, well, this is a publishing contract. But then when you actually read the contract, it's basically a complete transfer of all the intellectual mm-hmm. property rights with no way to actually get them back. And ho- Hollywood accounting is actually baked into the deal, so you're probably never going to get paid either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, on the creator-owned side, yes, that is still fairly prevalent. On the freelance side, no, things are getting better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's correct. And, I, I, I mean, I think a lot of companies, obviously, you know, are trying to get the best deals they can. And mm. uh, I would always say to people, uh, now for creators, it's a lot more common to have an agent. There's a lot more agents who handle graphic novels. And there is a lot more lawyers, such as yourself, who are, you know, specializing in this this uh, arena. And I, I mean, you know, you mentioned like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Walking Dead, and, and some of the material about this. But I mean, it's, it's totally true. Uh you know, you can't, might just like those the Laird and Eastman with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, they lucked into a really great lawyer who got them an insanely great deal. That I mean, they were just so lucky to have uh, Ryan. I think his name was Ryan Brown. I might be wrong. Anyway, he was a great, great got a great deal for those guys. Absolutely, and if you, I mean, there's the the historical story of like you know Siegel and Schuster when they did their deal for you know Superman way back in the day they did not for the best of my knowledge and this is a historical Uh issue didn't have the kind of lawyer that like a Bob Kane did when he went into the exact same company to do Batman right so the deal came out completely differently and the the way the the lives of those individuals played out yeah it's you know yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so I guess my message to, to anyone is, uh, that you should, uh, you know, if you're contemplating a deal with a larger entity, uh, get yourself, uh, at least some, just hire a lawyer to read the contract. Uh, you know, I, I assume that you're still available for, you know, your, your company is still available. So, yes. yeah. Uh, and, and then buy this book also, but buy this book. I, I will say it's a, it's a really, I, I think this should be a, 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 a very comprehensive guide to um to a lot of these issues well the other thing is you you mentioned um when you're dealing like creators dealing with larger entities should kind of get that kind of Mm -hmm. legal advice but it's also now because now and the reason my practice has actually grown so much is because technology has allowed for creators to actually work with each other Mm -hmm. to just make a project and you know get it out into the world and find and, you know, find their place. And even in those situations, you kind of need to make sure that the legal aspects are completely laid out before everyone starts to 
go off into the world and make what they're making because you don't want to run into a situation where later on no one actually knows who owns what. Correct. No one actually knows how much is anyone supposed to be getting paid. And then there was a, there was actually a, a panel that I did last week for Mainframe Con and one of my panelists, um, used the phrase contracts protect friendships. Yes. Because a lot of these, the people who make comics, by and large, are have some kind of, you know, interpersonal relationship with each other when they're making these books, especially on an independent level. If you want to keep your friends or your loved ones or anyone else, you should have some kind of contract in place because, you know, if and when Netflix calls, you don't <laughs> want to have to worry about the contract then because it's too late. Well, it's it's... Funny you say that because, like, of the two uh, two examples I just brought up, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and The Walking Dead, uh, I will say whatever the deal was between Eastman and Laird, it seems to also have survived um, Mm -hmm. just in terms of, uh, you know, these guys both became multi-multi-millionaires over this property, which has made, you know, a billion dollars over the years. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I I don't think they were close friends, but, you know – like they both kind of did their own thing and had their money and was fine. Whereas with The Walking Dead, there's been so much litigation over that, you know. And yeah. um, you know, was it spelled out? Uh, well, the courts kind of decided that, but uh, a lot of people weren't quite clear on what was happening. Exactly, and you don't want to get to a situation in comics where you need a judge or a jury or a lot of other lawyers actually deciding. Who gets what? The way I actually explain it to my clients is it's very easy for everybody involved in a project to sit around over dinner or a few cocktails before <laughs> the book gets made and say, okay, well, if we actually sell the interactive rights for the video game to this, who gets what? Because right there, there is no money on the table and everybody right. can go, well, we can split it evenly or, well, the artist will get a little bit more, the writer will get a little bit less. You can, And there's no animosity there. It's actually a very enjoyable way to spend an evening imagining <laughs> how far your project will go and who will get what. And you memorialize all that in the contract, make sure it's all there. And now you can just you can make the book without the burden of knowing, well, am I going to get a royalty percentage off the digital you know, graphic novel. Am I going to get paid if this becomes, I don't know, a Broadway play or some? Right, nonsense? right, right. But I mean, you know, yeah. you need to, you need to think of of all of these things. Um, uh, what do you think? What do you think is probably the most common, like, mistake that people make when they come to you? You know, what's the most common misconception that they have? Okay. Well, it be when I created the book, I separated the process of creating independent comics into three parts. Pre-production, production, and post-production. Mm-hmm. Pre-production is where you gather all the resources that you need to make a comic, and you make all the major decisions for the comic before you start making the comic. When people come to me 90% of the time, they are already well into production. <laughs> right, right. But they don't know how they're going to pay for it. They don't know who owns the intellectual property. They don't really know who's going to make it or what relationship they have with the project. Are they a collaborator that owns a piece of the intellectual property or are they doing a work for hire? They're not necessarily sure. They absolutely don't know who's going to read this comic because they are hoping it's going to be a field of dreams kind of situation. (laughs) If they make the comic, people will show up. 
They're not completely sure about the distribution of the comic. And all of these things are part of the pre-production. So if you actually work these those steps out beforehand, then when you make the comic, I believe, at least from a business standpoint, it's much easier. Uh-huh. You know what you're going to make. You know how much money you have to make it. You know how much time you're going to need because... Let's say you're gonna, you're really into making a horror comic and you're like, okay, well then we need to have the book on shelf by Halloween. Well, okay, what's the solicitation right. for that from the direct market? If you're, if you've decided in the summer that you want to make a book and you want to release it for Halloween, the answer is gonna probably be no. You're not Halloween this year. <laughs> right, right. You have to actually understand the production schedule and the printing schedule and the timetables and you have to build a market. So, it's a it's a process that you have to understand before someone starts putting their starts typing out the script. Right. So the biggest mistake is not enough effort put into pre-production. That's right. Well, everybody wants to be part, you know, part of this and it is still amazing to me uh, well, it's less amazing with the success of the MCU and all that, but, and, mm. you know, things like the old guard, you know, which is, mm. it's a, you know, there's so much IP, uh, that is so important to people, but, uh, you know, everybody wants to get into this business. And I, I see these new companies starting all the time there every year. There's a new crop, you know, like with bad idea, AWA, mm-hmm. um, TKO. And I talked to the folks involved and, uh, you know, some are old timers as with AWA, but you know, there's just something about comics. People, people want to be in it and not just because they might hit it lucky with some kind of 30 days of night thing that, mm-hmm. you know, it's like they like, they like the community and they like the feeling of, of making things that's so direct to the reader, I think. Yes. And I think part of it, part of the reason like a lot of people get into comics is because there's very few people. I believe, who are getting into the comics as a business who actually don't enjoy reading comics. Correct. Like, if you don't like reading comics, you're probably not going to be making comics because you don't really see the point. But if you love making comics, then part of it is just wanting to be in among those people because you could actually see and interact with comic book creators in ways that it's more difficult to do with authors or playwrights or actors or anyone else. You can just go to a con and hang out with a comic book like mm-hmm. yep. artist, depending right. on their level like every year i go into new york comic con and i walk past and i see chris claremont mm-hmm. and i'm like wow mm-hmm. i grew up with chris claremont he's amazing he's actually like five feet from me right every single year in the same spot on artist alley it's fantastic it, it, it really is and and uh that is absolutely one of the appeals of the industry now you have, I want to talk about the process of this a little bit. Despite your love of the industry and knowledge of it, you are not, you haven't done it yourself. You don't write comics, but you did write a series of self-published novels. Is that correct? Yes. I wrote six novels between the years of 2013 and 2016, I want to say. I think the last one came out right before I started this project. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So you... Uh, yeah, what, what, what made you want to write novels? Be a novelist? Well, the, the, it actually started when I was in Marvel because around that time all the editors were sent to Los Angeles to take a seminar with a gentleman named Robert McKee uh-huh. who wrote a book, the book Story and then later on he wrote Dialogue. Correct, and, yes, the, the Bible of film, film screenwriting. 
exactly. But at all of the editors were sent over there with the idea that they were trying to reverse engineer the how the movies were going to be made because <laughs> at that, Marvel wasn't making their own movies. They were licensing them. Right. But the producers and the directors would come to Marvel and say, okay, what books should be made into the story? So the idea was they were going to make books in the same manner as a film would get made or the same process so that when they handed the graphic novels to the producers and directors, the directors would go, oh, this great works great as a movie, and then go make the movie that Marvel really wanted them to make, even though they didn't have control of it. That's a long <laughs> backstory and segue. But when CB, it was CB Sabolsky or Mike Morris came to me and said, this is actually a great seminar. This is a great book. You should read this book. I read the book, and it was one of the, like, probably one of the best books that I ever read in my life. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading it, I started to get like ideas of what it was I wanted to like write about and how I wanted to write. But I started to what I knew of that, you know, the upfront cost for comics was kind of high. So I was like, mm -hmm. well, I don't want to make comics because I don't have that kind of cash. So I started writing a series of espionage novels that had a what I I used a historical concept in espionage called the Honey Trap, and I built a series of books based on this idea because I wanted it to be a counter to what I felt was the James Bond, Jason Bourne, um, Jack Bowers of the time mm -hmm. to do something different. So I, I started writing, and then I realized once you start writing and self-publishing was a viable thing i actually yeah like i said six novels in like i don't know four years that's incredible years. <laughs> well when you don't have to worry about a query letters to agents you don't yeah. have to worry about publishers you could just put out any as many books as you want so so i did for a while and then i realized okay i need i well the story pretty much ran its course mm. and then i figured okay i and i saw the the need for this book that i just finished so I switched gears and I moved back into nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Well, that you know, but you got your feet wet. So, um, so now you're doing this book through Kickstarter. Um, yes. So what made you choose that venue? And by the way, it's already funded, uh, for fully funded, um, and with many days to go. So you know, go in there and, and get your own copy. Um, so twenty days to go. Uh, plenty of time to go get a copy. But yeah, what made you go with Kickstarter? Well, the original idea when I was wrapping the book, I was like 75, 80% finished with the book last November, December. And I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to wrap the book up in time to have a big splash at New York Comic Con. Ah. Uh, exactly. That was going to be the, that was going to be my coming out party. New York Comic Con 2020. Um, and then in March, <laughs> yeah. March happened, passed, yeah. Exactly. There was there was an event. It was a small thing. Maybe you heard about it. You know, mm. affected a few people, and actually shut down every major Comic Con except for C two E two. Right. So when I started thinking, well, how am I going to how am I going to get the word out about the book? Because I had been maintaining a Facebook group about this issue for about a year and a half as I was writing the book and the Facebook group had about 2,500 people and there were like a thousand people on Twitter and there were the people that were like my client base and people like that. So there was a, there was a enough of a group already interested in the book that we said, okay, we can actually have, we can make an event 
it's not going to be as big as Comic Con, but it can actually get the the interest up and get the word out about the book prior to release. So we decided to use Kickstarter as that, you know, compensation prize for not having New York Comic Con. Ah, uh, you know what though? That's a brilliant pivot because obviously, uh, I, I mean, even in my uh, my own, uh, you know, COVID office here, uh, you know, there's a lot. I I, I find that the the uh, getting everything digitally, all your news, all your information, all your human contact digitally is very, very much, you know, it, it hits the same level. It's very, mm-hmm. very flat. And, it, you know, it's very hard to kind of ha- have highlights to it. And whereas at a Comic-Con, like you say, you keep talking, you know, keep referencing, yeah, when you go to the con, you walk around, you have all these ideas coming at you and they strike you much more forcefully than just talking about it uh, online. But by doing a Kickstarter, it's true. You, We are trained, even in the comics journalism business, you know, when it's a Kickstarter to know that, you know, we only have so much time to talk about this, you know. Exactly. So that was a, that's, you know, hey, listen, uh, anybody listeners, look at how, uh, Gamal, um, pivoted. Very smart pivot. You, you should, again, you should read this book. You know? <laughs> so it's, you mentioned actually, I, I noticed, uh, you know, I, I want to ask you about, um, you know, writing it pre-COVID, post-COVID, obviously some changes there, but you do say, uh, I noticed, you know, overcoming obstacles or changes and uh, what would you do? Uh, I'm just going to read this p- passage because it kind of cracked me up. What would you do as an independent comic book publisher if the big two suddenly stopped publishing new comics for some reason or an emerging new comic book format became the new standard across the industry or new distribution players suddenly entered the market or the multimedia popularity of comic book related content came to an end or a new generation of film, television and video game makers began looking for independent comic book content in the same way many current film directors grew up with the big two now look to those stories for inspiration. Now I don't know if you wrote this passage, you know, pre-COVID or post-COVID, but obviously we're kind of looking at so many of these things right now, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, these are all realities we're we're considering. Yes. Well, I wrote the passage pre-COVID, but there was, I think, a specific, <laughs> specific chapter. I think it's chapter 75 of the book was about dealing with um, changing circumstances. And when I originally conceived of the chapter, it was going to be about, like, theoretical concepts that change in the industry or change in the world over time because making a comic is a process that takes a certain amount of time so you as you're with the the world that exists when you start making your comic may be a little bit different when your comic is done and you have to kind of deal with that in from a business standpoint Correct. but i start i had to write that chapter in april mm-hmm. of this year so covid had actually hit Diamond had stopped um, distributing. Conventions shut down. Um, a lot of publishers were telling, you know, creators pencils down. So I had to write it in a way that COVID became the central, I guess, the central character in that chapter mm. because everything referred back to that because what I was going to be talking about, you know, minor incremental changes when I first thought of the chapter. <laughs> But COVID kind of like swept across the entire like landscape of comics in the ways that they were actually consumed, distributed, produced, um, conceived. So that's, I mean, COVID had a very, um, 
definite impact on the book, not just in the way it was we launched it, but in the way it was actually written towards the end. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I mean, do you see, I, I mean, what do you think are some of the long lasting effects that we'll have, uh, because of this, this shutdown and this, this lockdown? Well, I think long term, you're going to see a situation where people are not going to automatically, um, except the status quo. Like, yes. for the past, what, since the 1980s, we've had one major distributor, and everyone going into comics knew who that major distributor was, so you didn't really have to go, well, okay, I don't have to worry about anything else if I want to get into print. Right. Well, now you're in a situation where that may or may not be the case, because you may have expansion, you may have consolidation, in the same way that you did, you know, when the direct market first started. But it's not going to be like the same thing that it always was. You're not going to have situations where distribution models, where con where conventions are going to automatically be a given. Because right. you may or may not have conventions. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't put your book out. It means that as you're planning these things, maybe maybe you're not going to do like, San Diego. Maybe you're not going to do New York. Maybe you're going to focus on smaller cons. Maybe you're going to focus, maybe you're going to create events inside of like local bookstores that have outdoor space or libraries because then you're actually controlling more costs. You're dealing, you're dealing with the situation as it develops. But the beautiful thing about being an independent publisher in most cases is you're talking about a much smaller group of people than a large established publisher. So if you need to pivot quickly, it's something that you could actually do because there's usually only four or five people who have to know about it when you're making an independent comic. Right. If you work for a large publisher that happens to also be owned by a much larger multimedia conglomerate, automatic pivoting is just not an option because there's a lot of people that have to know about what's going on and decisions have to be made far outside of the industry of comics that will have a direct effect on the comics. So, yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, that's the other thing I hear time and time again, though, especially from people who come into comics from, um, you know, the entertainment world, where this the structure. I mean, obviously now everything is changing in that too with the shift to streaming. But you know, the structure of making a film, making a TV show, is so complicated. Whereas with a comic. So, you know, there's so few people that you have to worry about. So mm -hmm. generally, so, uh, it's, it's, they find it very freeing. Um, so, I mean, do you think, do you think, I mean, and, and, you know, just to be clear, your book is, is about independent comics publishing. So, I mean, this is kind of like, like, you know, when you go to Artist Alley and you see people and they have their own books. I mean, it's about self-publishing, but it's also about kind of different smaller models of uh publishing and you know i just wrote a piece this morning as as we're speaking about how scott snyder is doing his own kind of imprint at image and you know he's funding it with a kickstarter and then james tinian is um also launching his own kind of little imprint and doing pub books and you know like a lot, I, I see a lot of established creators um, going to create our own comics doing their own thing i mean it just seems like a time of wild experimentation and that often leads to tremendous creativity mm -hmm. absolutely but i mean if you look back at when frank miller like left his run on daredevil to start doing his creator own things at dark horse then you had the major issue 
or the major event of like the big six creators leaving to actually form image in the first place. I think that's where you have the genesis of all of these creators coming to the conclusion. Mm-hmm. And because the technology allowed them to do it at the time, coming to the conclusion that they can actually make their own books with their own stories and their own sensibilities in ways that they could not if they were just, you know, getting a paycheck from the big two. I mean, but when I like one of the concepts in my book is that independent publishing is not necessarily just about the people that you might see in Artist Alley. If you take a look at somebody mm-hmm. like Aftershock, right? Aftershock is up on from a convention geography standpoint. Aftershock is up on the show floor, and they are by definition an independent comic book publisher. Mm-hmm. But they have like, and the reason I actually use that as an example is they have a business model that is based on sound business practices. Because the editor in chief, who was also the editor of my book, mm-hmm. Mike Moritz, actually, you know, got his start in the big two, understood the whole business process. So then when he actually went out and started his company, it's something that could hit the ground running because the model is already there in, in addition to the creative spark that he had with the talent that he brought in. Right. Um, do you and 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 yeah, you know, it's it's definitely like learning from you know there are a lot of systems in place and that are effective. And I think you're right. It's like these innovations about how we deal with them are you know going to be very exciting for the future. I mean, you know, I we talk about this on the on our regular podcast episodes all the time, but you know, believe it or not, someday this is going to be mostly over <laughs> you know even the black plague ended uh you know the spanish influenza ended so you know covid will be over someday and yeah. um you know it's important to remember it's very important to remember <laughs> that, it is fundamental to remember yes, it's not going to be over then why are we making I, I know right yeah exactly um so so you know you you actually i, I mean what do you think uh the the prospects are i mean you know uh for if you are an independent comics publisher to get to you know to have a tv show or to you know to get to get uh, you know licensed out or to have a access to 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 hollywood you know and i mean i say that not because i don't love comics publishing but you know let's be real it's like getting uh other media um uh, adaptation is hugely lucrative. It's definitely a part of the economic model of all of this. And, you know, Superman was one of the biggest licensed products right out of the gate. It was, you know, it, this goes back to the very dawn of comics. Uh, Superman and Batman were both, you know, licensed out. They were movie serials. They were radio dramas. You know, this, this is right. This is from jump from the dawn of the comic book industry. This was part of it. So, I mean, yeah, what do you think for indie publishers? Do you think it, it's a, it's a viable chance now or, you know, is it still tough? It is more viable than it has ever been before simply because there are more media outlets available to actually get your work out. It's, but it's the kind of thing where you have to actually keep in mind that it's, you're not going to be able to get Netflix to call you on the phone if you have one comic and no one has read it. (laughs) You're going to have to be able to Create a, a system, create a catalog, create a series that actually has legs that's long enough to gain momentum in the comic book market so that you're 
you can actually take that idea, not just the idea, but the potential eyeballs to a Netflix and say, this is my Umbrella Academy. Mm-hmm. This is my lock and key. It's not, it doesn't have to be based on superheroes. It doesn't have to be based on anything specific, but you have to be able to, you have to be able to have the longevity to last long enough for Hollywood to come calling. And I believe in the future, it's not going to just be Hollywood. It's going to be like, you're going to get more and more independent video game and independent India interactive companies popping up that are going to be looking for IP. They might actually look to independent comics. Mm-hmm. You're going to have more um, small scale independent like YouTube streaming type shows and production companies that are going straight through YouTube. They're going to be looking for content and it could be the independent publisher that can actually provide that content if and only if the independent publisher can last as a business long enough to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And to get to that point, you have to have a business model that's going to last beyond the Kickstarter. Right. Because if you're if you're only making a business model so that you can get one issue made, so that you can get one issue printed, and maybe sell a thousand copies, that's not going to get you where you need to be. You have to. I mean, the reason that one of the reasons Netflix bought Millar World wasn't because he had one book. Right. He had a whole library that he had built up. Over probably a couple decades. It's the same thing with Bendis and Powers. It's mm-hmm. the same thing with Miller and like a 300 or a Sin City. Mm-hmm. They had, they were, they had pedigree and they had cachet in comics for a significant period of time before Hollywood would even look in their direction. Right. For independent publishers, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to be like Todd McFarlane and make 300 issues of your comic and last for two decades, You'll probably get somebody to call you on the phone because right. that doesn't happen every day. Yeah, or if it's just, oh, go on. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. So yeah, that's you. The independent publishers can see because, like you said, concom- what they call concomitant culture, where w- a property jumps from one media to the next, is a, a fundamental to the fabric of comics. But the idea itself has to be popular enough for someone to want to invest in it. To make the other media, because comics have a certain cost to get them out the door on an issue by issue basis. But that cost is exponentially higher if I'm going to be making a video game for $150 million or a movie that's, you know, anywhere between 40 and $200 million. So if if, if there's not a, if there's not an audience, if there, if it's not a proven concept, just making and printing a comic book is not proof of concept. Making and printing a comic book and publishing it over a period of time so you get an audience that actually engages in it, then the the people who invest in that larger media knows that, well, okay, if the comic book has this large of an audience, you can scale up when you bring it out to multi, a, a larger media platform. So this project, this project is worth actually investing in where that other project isn't because no one's ever heard of it and no one, you know. Right. Right. Who's going to buy the tickets? Right, right, exactly. So, um, yeah, no, well, listen, this book gives, as I said, it is very, very thorough. It is really, it goes over to detail on, uh, so many things about, as you said, the pre-production, uh, legal documents, uh, copyright, trademark, 
um, all the, you know, to making the comic, to distribution, to stores, to crowdfunding, and and a million things. I that even, uh, you know, I can't even think of because of my head swims. <laughs> you know, I only yeah, I, I only know like the first three steps. This book goes into the the next <laughs> the next five steps. No, I'll tell you, it it does because uh, you know, there are certain things that are like you know incorporating, and I mean I know the difference between copyright and trademark. And, but incorporating, I'm like, LLC, S Corp, C Corp. I'm like, that's why I have a lawyer. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But this book, if you can focus on it, we'll actually give you, we'll explain it. Maybe I'll go back and read it after this interview and I'll, I'll figure it out finally. Um, so, well, well, Gamal, uh, thank you so much for the, for your time. Uh, and congratulations. I mean, the, like I said, the book is already funded. So. Yeah. Yes. It, there's been a very good response and it seems like, um, I've actually tapped into a need that I believe actually existed before COVID, but may have actually been exacerbated by COVID because people are now looking and thinking, well, I have, you know, I have some extra time and the market is kind of shaky right now. Maybe this is the time to actually work on this thing that I've been like noodling on for however long I've been thinking about it. So that's right. Yeah. No, I think that this book comes along at a very, very, uh, very, very opportune time. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, thank you so much. And, um, yeah. And as always, uh, remember to give us a like, give us a rating, tell us how we're doing. And always remember, there will be more to come.